Thank you all so much for joining this conversation with us during this time of crisis. I know that there are those of you coming from all over the world, from California to New York, from the UK all the way down to New Zealand. And it is just absolutely inspiring to be able to reach out to all of you here today. And I only wish that it was just under different circumstances. My name is Ron Lee. I am an inpatient medicine physician at Stanford. Like many of you joining us here today, my colleagues and I in the San Francisco Bay Area have been fighting COVID-19. And we are all just bracing for what is to come. I hope that you are all staying safe. We're going to get through this and we're going to do it together. The idea for this webinar was born out of a scramble among several of us to just learn as much as we can about how to best protect ourselves while we take care of patients with COVID-19. And then we quickly realized that there is just so much that we still don't know, so much we, we could learn, especially from the countries that have most successfully fought this pandemic. We know that as healthcare workers, especially those in the front lines, we are just at higher risk of getting infected. The data from China, from Italy, and from now from the rest of Europe and the US all show this. We have all heard of colleagues now falling ill, and some of them severely ill from COVID-19, while the rest just push on. And the thing is, if we get sick, we risk spreading the virus to our families, our friends, our communities, and we can also just no longer take care of our patients if we're sick. So that's why we want to learn everything, everything possible that could help us protect ourselves so that we can best serve those around us. We have all looked to South Korea as one of the success stories in controlling this pandemic within their country but also in how they have successfully protected their healthcare workers. I was lucky enough to connect with Dr. Chung from Seoul, South Korea, who has graciously offered to share his experiences as the director for the Center for Infection Prevention and Control for Samsung Medical Center, a tertiary care hospital. And they just have had extraordinary success in not only building workflows that work, but also just making sure that no one at their hospital gets sick. Now I have the pleasure to introduce Dr. Chung. As the Director of Infection Prevention and Control for Samsung Medical Center, he is one of the top experts in South Korea on hospital infection control for COVID-19. He is also the Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Professor of Medicine at Sungking Wang University School of Medicine. He is also the Secretary General for the Asia-Pacific Foundation for Infectious Diseases and also serves as the chair of the scientific committee for the Korean Society for Healthcare Associated Infection Control and Prevention. Dr. Chung, we are honored to have you here with us. Thanks for your time. Uh, thank you for your kind introduction. Nice to meet all of you. Uh, my name is Julian Jung, uh, and I'm very honored to have an opportunity to share our experiences in my hospital and also in uh, South Korea. The outline of my talk today uh, will be uh, the situation of COVID-19 epidemic in South Korea and also an overview of national response in South Korea. And also I'll cover uh, the response of the Samsung Medical Center at the hospital level. Let me start with a brief overview of COVID-19 situations in South Korea. As of yesterday, the number of confirmed cases is over 9,000 and the case fatality rate is 1.4%. The instance differs by the location. Daegu is the city showing the highest instance density, and the province surrounding Daegu shows the, the second highest density. 72% are from a single city, Daegu, 
uh, where big outbreaks occurred associated with worship or meetings uh, of a particular religion. And 80% of cases occurred in clusters, mostly in chronic care facilities and healthcare institutions, and also uh, some call centers of the company. And Seoul metropolitan area uh, has a high population density with accounting for 44% of total population in uh, South Korea. So we have a very high concern on this area, although uh, the instance of COVID is still low. As the outbreak in Daegu has been controlled thanks to participation of all citizens in social distancing and mask wearing, the number of new cases per day has become lower. However, the number of cases in Seoul metropolitan area has shown an increasing trend. Furthermore, the more the number of people diagnosed with COVID-19 is increasing among the people entering from overseas. South Korea, which suffered from the epidemic in several hospitals, uh, and that started from a single patient from uh, the Middle East five years ago in 2015, has prepared a lot uh, to cope with the crisis due to highly infectious disease. The government and healthcare institutions have been doing what should be done immediately as soon as the first imported COVID-19 patient was diagnosed on January 20th, and the people have followed these measures very well. In short, our response in Korea was to search all COVID-19 patients and trace all close contacts and quarantine all of them. Since it is expected that this pandemic will last for a long period, we are considering a new strategy to minimize the spread of infection in our daily lives while maintaining this strategy of search and isolate. Korea has a very heavy reliance on private sector providers of medical services with approximately 90% of hospital beds being private. Therefore, active participation of private healthcare institutions was also uh, essential. South Korea is one of the countries that have performed the most diagnostic tests for COVID-19. Currently, around 20,000 tests are carried out daily. Starting with 20 national labs uh, in the beginning, uh, 90 labs of hospitals or interested laboratories have been working on this together. After overcoming the MERS crisis in 2015, in accordance with the strengthened medical laws and regulations, there were a total of 1,027 negative pressure isolation beds nationwide. Although it is still insufficient in the surge situation, it was very helpful in dealing with the crisis. What about my hospital? Uh, the Samsung Medical Center is a tertiary care university-affiliated hospital in Seoul. It is a very big hospital with a large number of patients receiving medical services every day and also a large number of employees. A number of strategies have been implemented to prevent COVID-19 from entering and causing secondary infections in the hospital. We know that uh, as COVID-19 starts to spread to the community, we face an increasing risk. 
The crisis response headquarters has been in operation since the first case in Korea was diagnosed. Our multiple, multiple strategies to prevent COVID-19 from entering the hospital were implemented at uh, many locations. And the first step is screening at the hospital entrance. In order to prevent unrecognized COVID-19 patients from entering the hospital, body temperature is measured at the entrance and checked for history of traveling overseas and also cold symptoms. A strict policy of no mask, no entry has been implemented. The indicated person is asked to fill out a detailed screening questionnaire. The person who has a fever or respiratory symptoms, in particular who has a travel history overseas, is not allowed to enter the hospital and guided to visit uh, the triage of the emergency department or a temporary COVID-19 screening clinic. Since the MERS crisis, all hospital walls are equipped with sliding doors to restrict visitor entry. Now, all visitors except one family member are banned from visiting the patient. Before the patients uh, with reservation for medical service come to the hospital, we needed to make adjustment in their reservation uh, based on their risk of exposure to COVID. So we send next text message with a screening questionnaire, uh, which is linked to the web. If they have an increased risk of exposure, the schedule is postponed or telemedicine service is recommended. In Korea, DUR, uh, Drug Utilization Review System, has been successfully utilized for the hospitals to be provided the information of history of traveling overseas. So hospitals are provided with immigration information through an automatically linked computerized system to know if patients have recently entered from the COVID-19 epidemic country. This computerized system also provides the information if they are close contacts of confirmed patients. This computerized network uses the DUR, uh, which had already been operated to prevent overlapping prescriptions of drugs between healthcare institutions. Pre-admission uh, measures uh, are implemented when patients requiring hospitalization come from areas where the outbreak occurred. They are screened for COVID-19 uh, in the screening clinic before admission. A temporary COVID-19 clinic was established using portable negative pressure air conditioning equipment. Asymptomatic patients requiring hospitalization or healthcare workers coming from areas of serious epidemic area are tested here. Most suspected patients will visit emergency departments, so the role of triage is very important in the emergency department. Uh, the triage installed in a separate building away from the emergency room has been in operation 24 hours, seven days since 2015 to screen patients with highly infectious disease. So all suspected patients are isolated in the negative pressure room in a separate facility outside the emergency department and COVID-19 tests are uh, carried out there. 
So we have uh, a total of 11 negative pressure rooms in uh, this facility. And there is an anti-room and also individual bathroom uh, for each uh, isolation room and the portable X-ray machine uh, for exclusive use uh, in this facility uh, is equipped. Inside this facility, we have also a, a right space uh, for doing nasopharyngeal swap more safely. Uh, so the glass uh, barrier uh, here is located between uh, the doctor's side and the patient's side, uh, and the swap is conducted through a small rectangular opening. And the direction of the airflow uh, is to pass from the doctor's side to the patient's side. With these facilities the, in the emergency department alone, too many patients uh, wanted to be tested for uh, COVID-19. Therefore, outdoor temporary COVID-19 clinics were installed on uh, the roof of the parking lot uh, away from the main buildings. So symptomatic patients who uh, are blocked before visiting outpatient clinic or symptomatic healthcare workers are tested in this temporary clinic. Specimen collection can be done in uh, more patients because you don't have to wait for the next patient's test until there is enough air ventilation uh, like you do in an indoor clinic. Thus, all COVID tests are conducted only in specially designated clinics and are not permitted in regular outpatient clinics. This principle is uh, in order to protect both healthcare workers and patients or visitors. The Samsung Medical Center has carried out the COVID-19 test since February 8th. Uh, we have been using one of five commercial kits, which were approved for emergency use by the Korea Ministry of Food and Drug Safety for diagnostic purposes. We started it in the mini lab in the communicable disease isolation unit uh, that we have, uh, but there was not enough space to perform a large number of tests. And so a temporary negative pressure lab was established. The turnaround time in our lab is four to seven hours. They do the test eight times per day, so every three hours, same on weekends. And currently, maximum capacity is around 300 tests per day, but it will be increased to 500 soon. COVID-19 patients are cared in Communicable Disease Isolation Unit, CDIU, uh, which is located near the emergency department and separate from other facilities. And there are eight negative pressure isolation beds, including two ICU beds. We have another separate airborne isolation unit, uh, which has nine negative pressure isolation beds. Currently, uh, pneumonia patients requiring hospitalization are being isolated here until COVID tests come out. In order to protect healthcare workers from COVID-19, uh, especially in care of the COVID-19 patients, uh, we have a dedicated core team for highly infectious disease. Uh, we organized and trained this team after MERS crisis in 2015. So this team comprises the specialists in infectious disease and pulmonary medicine, critical care, and cardiology, uh, etc. And important thing is the residents and interns are excluded. And also the nurses, uh, mostly from ICU, and uh, radiographers uh, is also uh, included in this core team. So the 
this core team is dedicated to care of the COVID-19 patients. And to support this team, uh, the packed food is delivered to the isolation unit uh, and also temporary accommodation is provided to those who want. They have one week's break with quarantine after two weeks of dedicated care, and they can return uh, to care of non-infected patients after COVID test negative. And the core team has been conducted mock training and drills uh, for various situations in preparation, uh, preparation uh, for care of patients with highly infectious disease. And Center for Infection Prevention and Control check whether the core team can perform everything properly uh, as they had practiced through the training courses. One of the most important things to protect healthcare workers uh, from the COVID-19 is wearing N95 adequately. So we have been educating the healthcare workers for adequate N95 wearing and support to choose the N95 product uh, just right for their faces uh, through the fitting test. In this COVID pandemic, there is an increasing demand for education of healthcare workers on proper donning and doffing of PPEs. So we have been continuing education of more and more healthcare workers who could be involved in uh, care of the suspected patients. Uh, our strategies to protect healthcare workers from COVID-19 uh, included uh, many things. We are banning hospital staffs visiting overseas or local areas where outbreaks occur. And the principle is uh, all events or meetings are cancelled. Importantly, all hospital staffs should report mandatorily uh, their body temperature and presence or absence of respiratory symptoms twice a day. Uh, using uh, our messaging system. And the symptomatic steps are tested after counseling uh, with an ID specialist. And we are refraining from visiting public facilities uh, even during off hours and social distancing is uh, encouraged. Okay, well, thank you so much, Dr. Chung. Um, this is extremely helpful, very informative, and just highly impressive and inspiring. And you know, one thing that I wanted to just start by asking, it's a fairly high level question, but I do think it's important, is many of us, uh, especially here in the US, but probably others, other countries in the world, we look at this and we're just quite struck by how rigorous this approach is. It, it almost reflects, you know, a certain level of fear and respect for the virus. When there are some, and, and for us, I think even not that long ago, there are many who say that the COVID-19 is not that different from influenza. And we certainly don't approach influenza with this level of fear and respect. So can you actually just talk more about why has your country taken this so seriously? Like, why are you investing so much resources in something that for a lot of people might not seem as more that, that much more infectious than the flu? Yeah, uh, actually, we experienced another uh, viral pandemic recently. Uh, that was 2009 influenza pandemic, H1N1. But we know that these two pandemics are totally different because the last influenza pandemic was just uh, influenza virus. Even though that novel influenza virus was a mutant, some of our population had uh, uh, partly uh, immunity against those virus. And also important thing uh, was for influenza pandemic, uh, we have a vaccine. So we can uh, make vaccine just within three to four months. 
so we can uh, start to provide vaccination to the people. And also we have a very effective antiviral agent against influenza. Compared to this pandemic, this COVID-19 pandemic is the first pandemic by, caused by coronavirus. Uh, so all population uh, on Earth uh, has no immunity against this virus. So anybody, anyone can be infected by this virus. Uh, and also we don't have any vaccine. Even though we hear that the first or the second vaccine trial has been started at various locations, but we uh, have to wait uh, at least one or one and a half years, uh, although it is successful. We don't have any effective antiviral agents for this COVID-19 uh, at the moment. From the experience from of, of the past two months, we know that this COVID-19 uh, is more fatal than uh, any other previous influenza pandemic. So the case fatality rate uh, is like uh, over 1%. Uh, we hear that uh, very uh, high case fatality is uh, observed in high-risk groups, uh, including the uh, old aged or, and also the patients have uh, with underlying diseases. It is easily transmitted between each other. So this COVID-19 pandemic can be very dangerous. Many experts are saying that uh, this kind of pandemic came uh, to us in 100 years or so after uh, the previous 1919 influenza pandemic. I think it, this is very serious at this point. Thank you. I think that is really important to hear, um, especially since I think there are many different versions, I think, of vigilance, I would say, and respect and fear of this virus. Just because I think there's a lot of, there are many different opinions and different types of messaging. And I think that you do see a difference in the level of response, depending on how serious you take this uh, pandemic. And something that also uh, struck me was that it sounds like what you're saying is one reason why this is so dangerous is that this is something that the human race has never seen before. So there's no herd immunity. There's no vaccine, at least in the near future. Um, antiviral trials are happening, but we don't really know how those are going to work out. So in a sense, even if the case fatality rate is, it's not extremely high, I and mean, it's higher than the flu, but it's in the single digits, there isn't really much of a ceiling in terms of how many people can get infected, because it could actually spread to everybody, given that no one is really immune to it. So the other thing I wanted to ask you then is specifically as um, the director of infection prevention and control for a hospital, um, how do you think about the hospital then as an area where outbreaks can occur and the specific risk to healthcare workers? What's so special about a hospital that makes you so much more extra careful? Uh, so the hospital is one of the most dangerous areas pandemic. I think we have to be very cautious about the uh, infection of healthcare workers and also the outbreaks which can occur in the high-risk patients. That is the reason why the Samsung Medical Center has made many efforts to block transmission inside the hospital. Like, how do you think about the risk of patient-to-healthcare worker transmission versus healthcare worker-to-healthcare vers uh, worker transmission versus healthcare worker-to-community transmission? Um, are you equally worried about all three or more worried about one over the other? The uh, risk of transmission of such a kind between each other uh, will be very high. But from the experience of the past two months uh, in uh, South Korea, 
uh, we have seen many situations that there had been no transmission, uh, although the COVID-19 patient was uh, recognized uh, at the late period. So even though there had been many uh, exposure events inside the hospital, in case that the COVID-19 patients wearing masks on every occasions and also the healthcare workers uh, wearing uh, masks, uh, then the secondary infection does not occur. Wearing the mask inside the hospital in both uh, the patients and also healthcare workers is very important to uh, avoid the possible secondary infection or transmission. That's interesting because you, you do emphasize this practice of wearing masks inside yeah. the hospital, regardless of whether or not you have symptoms. So can you explain that more? Actually, the purpose of wearing masks will be in both, like to protect a healthcare worker or patient from being infected. And another important reason why we have to wear the mask will be in case that I'm an infected person, we can prevent infecting other persons by wearing a mask. So I think uh, the second uh, reason is more important in terms of the blocking transmission of COVID-19. And you are referring to not N95 masks, but regular surgical masks? Yeah, actually, just regular surgical masks uh, is recommended for all hospital staffs in every situation. But uh, N95 uh, respirator is, will be required in this, uh, special care, such as the procedures that can generate aerosol or some aerosol-generating situations, such as severe coughing patients. Uh, in those situations, uh, N95 uh, will be the minimum protection. So in my hospital, all hospital staffs are required to wear surgical masks in every location. And when we care the patients with airborne infection, N95 is required. And for aerosol-generating procedures, we need four kinds of PPE, N95 and the face shield or Google or shield mask. And thirdly, the gloves and the last part is the surgical gown. The same four kinds of PPE is recommended for staffs working on the gate control and the triage and the healthcare workers carrying the unexplained pneumonia. But for healthcare workers carrying COVID-19 patients, full protective PPEs, including PEPPER, the powered air purifying respirator, is recommended. So can I ask then, um, if you go back to your previous slide, you talk about wearing N95 masks and surgical yeah for procedures. So you're saying you recommend um, wearing N95s for doing procedures regardless of whether or not you know the patient has COVID-19. Right. So even though we don't know about their presence of uh, COVID-19, we recommend all these strict PPEs for the healthcare workers involved in uh, those kinds of care. And can you explain why? Because we are trying to find every COVID-19 patient using multiple strategies, but it cannot be 100% because the COVID-19 has been already spreading in the community. And there are so many infected persons which have little symptoms. So we cannot recognize 100% of suspected cases. That's the reason why we apply the strict precautions for all patients' care. And are you saying that you would also 
classify someone with a severe cough as someone who potentially would be um, generating aerosol? Yes, I think so. So, for example, when carrying the outpatient's clinic, uh, we usually start uh, with just a surgical mask. But uh, when the patient who has severe cough comes in, I switch it to N95 because I can be infected with just a surgical mask. Uh, actually, many experiences uh, in previous researches comparing uh, the efficacy of prevention between N95 and surgical mask in terms of the influenza prevention, there was no significant differences uh, if we wear those kinds of masks or respirator properly. So proper wearing uh, is very important in both N95 and surgical mask. But theoretically, N95 will provide more protection against airborne infection. And are you aware of any data then specifically for COVID-19 and the potential risk of transmission with a surgical? I I think there has been uh, no uh, report comparing uh, the efficacy of two mask or respirators in terms of COVID-19 prevention. But it sounds like you are using the N95 masks anyway, just out of extreme precaution because of how dangerous you think this virus is. Yeah. But for general care, proper wearing of surgical masks is very effective. But Mm. to make prevention more perfect, uh, N95 is uh, necessary in some situations. One thing that we are starting to learn here is the once the viral particles become aerosolized, let's say from a nebulizer treatment or intubation, those particles, uh, some, there are some data that shows that the particles hang around in the air for several hours. Is that something that you have seen as well and are incorporating into your PPE protocols? Actually, uh, we believe that this COVID-19 is transmitted through droplet transmission. So airborne transmission through uh, very small arrows or particles is very rare uh, situation. So it's possible, I believe, but it is a rare uh, situation. So mm-hmm. we need to focus on the droplet precaution using the mask or respirator. But uh, we have to find out in which situation we need to uh, imply uh, more strict PPEs, including N95. So in the clinical department need to consider uh, in our medical services, which services will be at high risk. And you, you showed us your entire set of PPE for COVID positive patients, which includes not just N95s, but full body suits, the PAPRs. So can you explain the rationale for having a full body suit rather than just uh, a mask with a gown? Yeah, when we care the critically ill COVID-19 patients, very dangerous procedure can be performed inside the rooms just like this. So in those situations, the healthcare workers can be at risk of contaminating their body parts. So full body protection is also important in this situation. But if we just go in and ask something to the patient and go out, And then we don't need such kind of protection. We just wear N95 and glove and surgical gown and enter the patient and conversation for a short period and can go out. So it depends on the situation of patient care. Mm -hmm. So what would you recommend then specifically say for a patient who is on the wards, who's coughing? Um, You're not necessarily doing a high-risk procedure, but you are close to them, you're putting 
into a nasal cannula, for example, maybe you're putting a mask on them uh, to provide oxygen. So you're fairly close to the patient, they're coughing in your area. What, what types of PPE would you recommend in those situations? In my hospital, we are recommending the four kinds of PPEs, including the N95 and the face shield. So I think two is important. So the N95 and also face shield covering the eye area and also mm-hmm. gloves. Three will be most important. And the last part is surgical gown or any disposable gown to cover the anterior body surface. Do you have any specific thoughts on the potential need for covering your hair and your shoes? We can cover the hair part and also the uh, shoes, but it is uh, the least important thing, I think. Because you're saying the droplets could potentially land on your hair, and then if you yes. touch you could actually transmit it that way. Yes, right. Mm, so if you have long hair, so the more exposed surface area, it sounds like that would be more important than maybe someone with my hair, which is pretty short and uh, much less surface area. So that makes a lot of sense. So I wanted to go back then to the idea of this primarily being a droplet uh, or the transmission primarily being droplet, because I think there's a lot of confusion now, especially in countries with limited number of N95 masks. We are at a point where sometimes we only have a surgical mask and uh, we're told to go into a COVID positive room with a surgical mask. So can you just describe maybe, I mean, based on the data you have and your experience, um, how, what level of risk is that? Um, do you think that's more or less enough or do you feel like that's something that typically is not going to be adequate in protecting healthcare workers? The problem is the shortage of the PPEs in many areas. My hospital has also the issue of the running out of the surgical mask. So we are checking the stockpiles of every PPE every day to see whether we have enough amounts to maintaining our the PPE policy. So if we don't have any stockpile for the next few days, we should change our policy about PPEs. So just like you mentioned, N95 could not be provided to the high-risk procedure. So I think it is important that we understand that N95 respirator is better than a surgical mask uh, in terms of protection, but surgical mask is also very effective. We should understand that proper wearing of surgical mask can be very effective to prevention of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned the proper wearing of surgical masks. What are the most common mistakes that people make when they wear surgical masks? Uh, healthcare workers uh, usually follow the uh, right wearing principle, but many patients or general public do not cover their nose, just covering their mouth. So they have to uh, learn what is the proper way of wearing of surgical mask. And also most products of surgical mask has the clip, nasal clip, to uh, help the fitting in uh, our face. So we have to fit the surgical mask in our face. And also, uh, we should not touch the anterior surface of surgical mask with our hands because our hands can be contaminated by some viruses. So this is really, really helpful. Again, thank you so much. And Many of us, I know in different countries around the world, are, are facing PPE shortages. And I think yeah. you know, the worse the shortages, the uh, more creative we'd have to be in terms of providing at least the best possible protection we can provide for ourselves. And it is reassuring to hear from you that 
surgical masks, as long as they're being worn appropriately, actually is, does quite a bit. It sounds like it is not going to be as, as effective as N95s, but it is certainly better than nothing and it's fairly good. So I think that's reassuring for a lot of people to hear. And then the, the last thing is you did mention that patients do have to wear masks in rooms. Is, is that something that you do mandate in your hospital? Uh, actually, for the patients, uh, we do not recommend uh, wearing a mask inside their rooms, even uh, they are COVID-19 patients. COVID-19 patients will have respiratory distress in many cases, so they cannot wear uh, the mask. Uh, and also, they don't need to wear inside the room. But in case that we need to transport the patient outside the isolation unit, they uh, need to be covered by a mask. But in case that they have uh, any respiratory distress that they cannot wear the mask, we need a negative pressure isolation transport equipment. I see. So this is if a patient is um, on some oxygen device and can't actually wear a mask. So this is how you would um, Yeah. In this case of transport without uh, special equipment, N95 cannot be adequate for such a transport because uh, N95 fitting is not guaranteed uh, if the healthcare worker is moving their head a lot. So I recommend wearing a full protective PPE, uh, including the pepper, when we try to transport the COVID-19 patient uh, without this equipment. This is you're saying that even if a patient is wearing a mask, you're still requiring the providers to wear full PPE because you're afraid that yeah. the mask... Actually, we don't know uh, which event will occur during transport. Even though uh, when uh, we started to transport, uh, the patient was in uh, calm condition uh, with wearing mask, but the patient can have a sudden respiratory distress or coughing, vomiting. So in those cases, the healthcare workers can be exposed with a simple PPE. I also remember you mentioning that you've organized your units to minimize the distance needed to be traveled by COVID-19 patients, correct? As in you have your isolation units fairly close to your emergency department. Um, uh, right. And, and it sounds like your isolation rooms are actually all in one unit so that uh, providers who take care of COVID-19 patients do not have to traverse the hospital as much. They would actually stay in one area of the hospital the entire time they're working. Yes, right. And are they, they are donning and doffing uh, every time they enter an isolation room. Is that right? Oh, uh, yes. Okay. So it's not like they're staying in one shared unit with PPE the entire time. Because we have seen yes. that uh, in, in some other countries. Yes, right. You did also mention that uh, food is, you deliver food to those units. Um, this, does that mean that the providers do not actually leave those units the entire day they're working there? Uh, it's not uh, mandatory. So we recommend, as they can do, we prefer the healthcare workers, uh, the core team to not leave the hospital, but it, it is not mandatory recommendation. I also wanted to ask you about how you're testing your staff. Um, you mentioned that you have the staff report their symptoms, self-report their symptoms and their body temperature every day. What is your approach to testing staff? What is your threshold for testing and retesting? How do you think about that workflow? This is our policy for testing healthcare workers. The indications uh, are like this. So we test the healthcare workers returning from overseas. Now every country uh, abroad or local areas showing high rate of COVID-19 like Daegu in South Korea. And also we test healthcare workers 
with family members from overseas or blah, blah, the same uh, indication. And also we test healthcare workers with symptoms, fever or respiratory symptoms. And uh, we also test healthcare workers who are notified to be a close contact of a confirmed case. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, assuming that they were not wearing PPE during that contact? Yes, yeah, right. So if a healthcare worker is regularly caring for COVID patients, but with full PPE, do you have a policy of testing them? Uh, in that case, we don't uh, test the healthcare workers. But uh, as I already mentioned, uh, when uh, the core team finishes their duty over two weeks uh, for mm-hmm. dedicated COVID-19 patient care, uh, we test those core teams before uh, returning to general patients' care. I mean, a, a theme that I hear from all of this is this theme of isolation in the sense that you are doing everything you can to um, isolate everything that has to do with COVID-19, both geographically and both in terms of personnel, so that you can essentially quarantine off any potential uh, transmission from where the COVID-19 is in your hospital to elsewhere in your hospital. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about, I mean, has this been successful so far? Uh, we uh, mentioned that all COVID-19 patients isolated using the negative pressure facility uh, nationwide. But I mentioned that the maximum kappa of the isolation facility is about uh, 1,000 nationwide. And we have active cases about 6,000 now. So we cannot isolate all those infected persons. So the Korean government is doing that the mild cases can be uh, just quarantined at their homes. And more preferably, the training centers of the government or the training centers of some big companies are being utilized as the quarantine area of the uh, mild COVID-19 patients. And many uh, volunteer doctors and nurses from uh, many healthcare institutions are going there, training centers uh, with confirmed mild cases. And they are consulting their symptoms and considering uh, when they should be transferred to a hospital like that. Mm. This is such a massive undertaking for your team. Such a large hospital. You mentioned you had 9,000 staff members. Um, Yeah. huge change to, to their normal workflow. How are you able to engage all of them and have them um, do all this in, in such a regimented way? Yeah, we, ha- we have a lot of healthcare workers and so many patients uh, inside the hospital. And in Korea, uh, there are a few hospitals with very similar uh, situations. And uh, we have a concern about increasing risk of infection inside the hospitals. So that is the reason why uh, we have been implementing so strict policies. It sounds like just a, a culture of seriousness that everyone uh, attributes to this. Yeah. Actually, uh, another important thing in prevention of healthcare workers from infected by COVID-19 is occurring at off day of hours because uh, they can be infected in, in the community. So uh, we are encouraging just following the general principles of social distancing to 9,000 healthcare workers. But I'm not sure <laughs> the principle can be followed by all healthcare workers, 100%. So for the safety of our healthcare workers, uh, we have been finding and doing additional things we can do. Uh, So for example, the glass barriers uh, were installed to protect the 
workers at the reception desk uh, of the administration, so like here. So uh, it can block the droplet transmission between the healthcare worker and uh, visitors. So that has been installed uh, recently in my hospital. And every hospital has a big call center who deal with the patient's reservation and changing uh, of those schedules. And this call center uh, is at high risk of transmission between each other because for a clear conversation, the workers here usually prefer the wearing of their masks and the distance is so close. So uh, we made a change. So the employees working here should wear a mask at any time and the seats were rearranged so they were seated one by one just like here so to reduce the risk of transmission between these people and also uh, when uh, eating uh, especially in the staff cafeteria they have to take off the mask for eating which may spread the COVID-19 in the step cafeteria. And they want to uh, conversate each other. Uh, so I think the cafeteria in the hospital is uh, with high risk of transmission between uh, each other. So the hospital have started in, uh, the campaign silence during the dining and uh, sit side by side without facing each other. So in this cafeteria, uh, there is no chair. Nobody can see it facing these people. Oh, it must be very quiet in the cafeteria, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, again, very, very helpful. And uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. I, I'd like to ask one more quick question and then also just have you maybe help us summarize. Just give us some advice, really, <laughs> that we could take forward. The, the, the last question I have is, you, you do make a, a very important point. I mean, even now, as you have thousands of cases in your country, um, it, sound, it seems like you are doing everything you can to prevent transmission, which is a different approach than, say, we already have so many cases, why don't we just let it spread and then we'll just uh, so-called flatten the curve and slow it down. Um, do you think that's... So given that, at least in the United States, we have different states with different levels of infection. So in New York, unfortunately, they've been hit very hard. Um, California, we've been hit hard as well, though not as much as New York. And then we also have other states, actually, that are starting to see cases, but not nearly as, uh, the numbers aren't nearly as high. So um, from your perspective, what would be the best approach to, to really solving this problem for a place like the U.S., where you have all these pockets of infections, they haven't quite exploded in the way that some areas have. Is there a chance to still contain this infection? That's a very uh, difficult question, actually. So because we, uh, everyone knows that this COVID-19 pandemic uh, will uh, last for a long period, uh, like one year. And at any time, um, many persons will be infected. But the important experience that we shared is the situation in Wuhan, China, uh, at the beginning of this pandemic, and also uh, the situation in Daegu city in South Korea. Uh, and also, we have been seeing very serious situations in Italy and uh, other European countries. That uh, dangerous situation occurred when the 
transmission was so active without any kind of uh, efforts to prevent transmission in, in the community. So those numbers of increasing infected persons surpassed the surge capacity of the city, of the country, and so many fatality has been uh, caused. So uh, although we are facing a, the pandemic lasting for a long period, uh, and we cannot block this transmission by vaccine, uh, we need to uh, slow down uh, the transmission in every community and in the city and at the country level. That is the way we can reduce the number of the fatality. And it sounds like these measures of social distancing, of wearing masks in public, right. like that, that has really played a huge role in your country. Yeah. Although uh, the community starts to uh, loosen the social distancing because we also need to do work and also we need to be involved in economy, the production like that. But the last place that we have to address social distancing uh, will be healthcare institutions and also the chronic care facility. So uh, mm -hmm. we are working at the place uh, where the most strict policies should be applied. Well, I think that's a good place to end. And what I'm taking from this is that this is very hard. You know, there's no real, there's no real answer at this point. And, and it seems like the solutions will have to be adapted, of course, to wherever you are. But, but at the same time, I think you give us a lot of hope because this is a situation that your country has done a very good job addressing. And the measures that you've implemented are um, doable, I think, in many places. I think there, there is a real equipment shortage. I think there are places that just will not have enough full body suits, will not have enough N95 masks. And I think, you know, we will have to adapt as healthcare workers. At the same time, I think what you're describing here are measures that may not even require as much equipment, but it's more of maybe a mentality, a shared mentality among your people, um, which is that this is serious. This could get a lot worse. This is nothing like we've ever seen before. We need to come together as a country um, to do this. And also, this this maybe a concern specifically for healthcare, the healthcare workforce, and the healthcare workers in healthcare facilities is that being so such a high risk area that almost everything has to be done to make sure that that area is as safe as possible. And I think that that's something that we will have to work on. And you know, we have our constraints, we have our PPE shortages, but I also think that that's a problem that's solvable. We know how to make masks, we know how to make all this equipment. I think it's part. Um, technology, but also part political will. And I think that's something that hopefully we as healthcare workers can come together and um, figure out how to solve together. So um, with that, thank you again, Dr. Chung. Uh, we really, really do appreciate it. Um, we look to you as, uh, we look to you for guidance, also just again for hope as we fight this together. Um, thank you again for the Deep Learning AI team for really facilitating this. We really do hope to continue this conversation. So for those of you listening, if you have any ideas or suggestions, please email us. And with that, uh, we will end this session. Good luck out there. Stay safe. Take care.